Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest, a returning guest. His name is David Livingston. We talked two times in the past. One was about really a fascinating, an excellent book, six-part book titled Ordo Ab Chaos. And I'll put a link in the show notes to that book. Uh, that's the dictum of the Masonic Orders, Order Out of Chaos, uh, Latin version. And it's a very detailed book, tons of research, really a magnum opus. And we talked about that, the intro, that was our first interview. And then we talked about a subset within that book, which was kind of about the European fascism, things like that, that theme. But today I reached out to him. I came, I keep coming across this book, Terrorism and the Illuminati. And I, I speed read through it. But the reason why it intrigued me is because I think that these secret societies and this false flag terror is still an issue today, 2022. Events that happen to facilitate political change or social change. So I think it's important. And this is another kind of sweeping book that he that is similar to Order of Kale, because he goes all the way back in time through different kind of ethnic groups, through certain groups, um, the assassin, Hashashin, all the way to the present day, things that people kind of know about. I learned stuff in this book I didn't know about Muhammad Atta. And he can kind of talk more about that. This isn't his first book. His first book was The Dying God, The Hidden History of Western Civilization. That was published 2002. Then this one, Terrorism in the Illuminati, A 3,000-Year History, 2007. Then Black Terror, White Soldiers, Islam, Fascism, and the New Age, 2013. Transhumanism, The History of a Dangerous Idea, excellent title, 2015. We're really in a dangerous time considering transhumanism or gender fluidity mm -hmm. or whatever. And then Order of which I think came out last year or the year before that, and uh, I will, like I said before, I'll put the six-part series in there, but we're going to talk about terrorism in the Illuminati, so David Livingston, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having you're me. You're definitely one of my most listened-to guests, and when people found out you're coming back, definitely the most kind of excitement from my audience, so I'm delighted to have you back. I know this is, I know this is one of your earlier books. Yeah. Can you kind of talk about your sensibility, why you're going back into this 3,000-year approach leading up to today? Yeah. And what you kind of learned on the way, and just uh, tell us about terrorism and the Illuminati. Okay, um, so when I wrote when I wrote the Dying God, <clears throat> I attempted to trace the history of of uh, the occult of Freemasonry uh, back to its origins, and I traced it back to uh, Babylon, um, from specifically to the sixth century BC. Uh, there was a lot of uh, older traditions that kind of fed into it, but that's really when the, the Kabbalah uh, was effectively born and then transformed into different uh, trajectories that uh, basically fed what's called the Western esoteric tradition. And uh, so I thought, I, I thought you know, I, I really took my time to, to, to get right to the bottom of it. I thought I'd covered it pretty thoroughly. And... Um, um, I had no idea I was going to write any more books after that. But little by little, certain things started to add up. Principally, I discovered the uh, Masonic origins of the Wahhabi movement of Saudi Arabia. So that was particularly fascinating. And then so as I started digging, um, uh, just a whole lot of things started to connect back to the occult history that I've been finding. And I started finding new uh, channels or, or past parallel paths to, to the to, to a lot of the topics that I've been studying. So uh, basically, why I call it three thousand year history is because um, you know it, the, the, it's terrorism was largely still is today these days it's right wing terrorism, but of course until recently it was Islamic terrorism, and uh, so terrorism has been a tool of um, the Illuminati, whatever you want to call them. Um, most recently, and of course, the Illuminati is, a, is an organization that was founded in 1776, but is founded on an occult uh, tradition and history that goes back, like I said, to at least ancient Babylon. Yeah, it's really fascinating. So these occult orders are learning from past. They go all the way back to all the inception of history, right? So you yeah. talk, I mean, they like to reference that Babylon is probably... That inception point. So, can you talk about some of those ideas that came out of Babylon and work its way up to the present day? Yeah. So, basically, it's it's effectively the history of Satanism. So, um, um, what the problem is is that you know, 
the, the modern perception isn't when you look at books like let's say Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code, it's it's a it's a it's a promotional book for Satanism, and it doesn't of course it doesn't describe itself with that, but that's how you know I think that people like um, Anton Lavey uh, when he founded the Church of Satan, it's basically a circus show, right? I mean he's a former circus performer. It's it's really just for it's theatrics. And it's nothing near uh, what uh, real Satanism is. And, he, and the problem is, is he, I think he contributed to really to a false perception of, of what Satanism is. And like a caricature, a, like a caricature. Yes, simplified Hollywood version of, of Satanism, right? And the problem is that uh, real Satanism as well, too, is really uh, misperceived uh, as well. Uh, it tends to be sort of narrowed into uh, black magic and ritualistic without a lot of understanding where a lot of uh, the symbolism and the, the ideas uh, come from. But when you look at the history of Satanism, it's actually quite large and, and it encompasses a lot of different um, doctrines, uh, elements, uh, components uh, that have a pretty wide history. So, you know, in the history of Satan, so in, in the cult of Satanism as a whole, uh, you know, at the top of it, of course, is worship of, of Satan as the liberator of mankind but there's an entire uh, theosophy that goes with it and that includes the uh, astrology uh, the belief in uh, of course alchemy uh, black magic numerology um you know so all the components that would get that would be involved in that and then you have to basically hybrid that onto a, a reverse interpretation of the book of revelation so they're basically trying to bring about the fulfillment of bible prophecy Except they see it in reverse, whereas uh, they're 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 trying to advance the this the, the the triumph of Satan through the use of magic and, and all these things, which is why so much is the time with astrology and, and all these kinds of things. So to understand the 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 origins of the occult, this is why it goes back to uh, Babylon. And um, like I was starting to say, is that a lot of people. When they look at these cults, and this is how a lot of these modern occultists are trying to uh, peddle it these days, is that they claim that these cults were misunderstood, particularly the ancient Gnostics. They were misunderstood. They were just, um, they were a radical uh, Christian interpretation, which was uh, mischaracterized by the Catholic Church, who wanted to suppress them because they feared the so-called truth. This is absurd. Um, you know, the, the the cults, the practices that were adopted by the Gnostics were the same that were adopted by uh, various pagan uh, cults around the time. Uh, one in particular, there's a very famous incident that was uh, 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 publicized by an ancient Roman uh, writer called Livy. And uh, basically, the it caused such a scandal that the Roman government had to try to suppress these cults. So this is a pagan government suppressing a pagan cult. Obviously, <clears throat> can't be any prejudice there. And when, so, you know, the impression is, of course, is that the, the, the devil is, is a concept that was invented supposedly by the Judeo-Christian tradition. But the reality is, is that the concept of good and evil is something you find in every culture. And some cultures have the worship of evil. And this is why uh, in the ancient Middle East, there was a particular cult. And this is why my book is called The Dying God, because it's, it's a, I focus on identifying the origins of this dying God worship because it was known, scholars refer to it as, as a, a catonic cult. So basically, the dying God was typically uh, worshipped as a god of the underworld. And so he was... If you go to Greece, a pagan again, another pagan culture, or other parts of the Middle East, which had like no association whatsoever with the Bible or Judeo-Christian tradition, they overtly identified these gods as gods as underworld and evil evil uh, gods. Poseidon, right? Yeah, you look at basically Apollo, Dionysus. Uh, those are female versions, so of course Athena, Aphrodite. Uh, they all have their equivalents in other parts of the world. So uh, in Persia. You had, uh, or Babylon, you would have Bel or Marduk. Uh, that's where you get the worship of the Saturnalia, which is when they follow Marduk. The Mithra was who was uh, worshipped amongst the Persians, and that evolved into Mithras, which is basically the core. And that's what I really treat in um, Terrorism Illuminati because it's there's what I call the Mithraic bloodline, and it's this bloodline, this this confluence of the families who were responsible for 
the formulation and preservation and development of the cult of Mithras uh, seem to have been the families that survived uh, uh, into later times. But they're really the families that, because you know it, it, the, the 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 Kabbalah begins in in the sixth century BC, but it really flourishes in the first centuries uh, AD. Particularly, I mean, at the at the forefront would be Mithraism, but all the other cults that uh, contributed to it, like uh, Neoplatonism and Hermeticism and the other uh, mysteries. And that's why Plato, Plato is really very much the godfather of the Illuminati. Wow. And how, how was that? How, how was the, this godfather? So what happens is that, um, so this is what I trace in the dying God. And this is, um, um, I think, I think I've, I've substantiated pretty well. And I think this is an aspect which is, in fact, the funny thing is, is that this would be exactly what Albert Pike would claim, except he's not, you know, regarded as a as a as a respected historian, but it just shows you that this history is acknowledged in the occult, because what you can see is that um, so the Jews basically were were uh, were cap captured by the Babylonians and brought to Babylon. Babylon, Babylon, six, at the six it's right there at the time, right? Six BC. Yeah, they were there for about fifteen years, right? And so basically, this is how you get this confluence of all these ideas. So this is how. You have these uh, basically uh, uh, Israelites who, uh, you know, probably not all of them, but a certain group of them who had his because the history before that of the Bible is a story is the history of the Jews repeatedly worshiping the dying God, right? Baal and Moloch and so on and so forth, sacrificing their children, worshiping the planets, you know, the uh, communing with spirits, the whole story. Sex so, at the temples, like sexual, whatever, mm, prost yeah, temple yeah. prostitutes, like yeah. really dark stuff. Yeah. Exactly. So even even the temple itself. So it's basically like the Vatican. If the Vatican had been turned into a, a pagan monument, that's effectively what happened to the Jewish uh, community. They had basically, you know, if, if, if there was any element of Judaism, in them, I, I think it would have been very, very small. In fact, it was pretty much only reformers who were attempting to try to, to, to bring it back. Otherwise, the community as a whole was indistinguishable from any of the, the, the neighboring uh, society. Right. That's like the groundwork of all the tension in the Old Testament. A lot of it is just fighting against these pagan traditions exactly. that you're talking about. Right. Uh, who so, the, who, yeah, sorry, go ahead. so the Babylonian captivity is a prophecy fulfilled, according to the Bible, right? If they didn't cease from worshiping these Baal and Astarte, they would be uh, in captivity by their enemies. And that's specifically what happens in, I think, 597 uh, BC. So they're taken to Babylon. And so what happens then is you get this merger, the confluence of uh, basically the uh, the worship of Baal, which is the same as the Babylonian Baal, and mixed then with Babylonian magic and astrology. And it's been proven that that, I mean, the the, the Babylonians had a very ancient tradition of um, astral uh, elements in their religion, but the astrology itself uh, was developed in the sixth century BC. So you can see all the all these elements come together. And what happens is that the Persians come in 538, 538, 539. Cyrus comes along and he liberates the Jews and he allows them to return to uh, Israel. So they go back to Israel, they rebuild the temple, uh, but it. it so the problem is that this this time the world was not aware of who the Jews were. The Herodotus he described the people of Phoenicia as having been uh, exiles from Egypt who practiced circumcision. So basically, he was calling the Jews uh, uh, Phoenicians. And uh, so uh, this is when the cult of the Magi began to spread. So so this cult that was a, a, a a mix of the elements of astrology and uh, dying god worship became attributed to the magi. I we don't have a lot of time. I hope I'm not getting too complicated. No, you're doing great. Good. Take your so, time. We have a full. I can give you a full hour. Okay. All right. So the problem is, is that the Persian Empire was Zoroastrian. So they worship the the uh, the basically the the it was a religion founded by Zoroaster. It's not really well known when it was founded. There's various theories. Um, uh, some some of them take it all the way back to about 2000 BC, which doesn't necessarily make any sense. But anyway, there's no. Pretty Mercury was a Zoroastrian. It's hard to believe, but that little came out of Persia. Yes, he was a part, Persia. part of the Persian diaspora yeah. and had a Zoroastrian 
funeral. So right. it's still around. I think the Manichaean idea yeah. comes from Zoroaster, right? Yeah. So the, so that's the challenge is that there's a real uh, orthodox, genuine orth, uh, Zoroastrian tradition, which was the really very much the religion of the Persian Empire. They worshipped, uh, they had uh, two gods. They had a good god, Ahura Mazda, and Ahriman, who was the, the evil god. They believed they were uh, basically in eternal conflict. So it was a completely separate religion, and uh, and and um, they had a legitimate tradition in Persian civilization. What happened now is you have these magi who became famous throughout the Middle East, and the religion that they followed had really had very, very little to do with Zoroaster, even though they attributed their cult to Zoroaster. So this is why most academics have got lost on this topic. And the, the guy, the, the founder of this study is Franz Cumont and his uh, co-author, uh, Joseph Bidet, Bidez. And he wrote, so basically he's considered the founder of the, of the study of Mithraism. And I've said this many times, but in my estimation, he's best scholar, the greatest scholar of the 20th century, at least Western academic. Because he, what's rare these days is for a single scholar to have a depth of expertise in many traditions. So you have a lot of scholars who are, you know, very well educated, let's say specifically in Greek civilization or might be in Middle Eastern civilization. But he had enough knowledge in most of the ancient civilizations to be able to see where the patterns were and where the cross influences were. So he's the one who identified that the Magi were not Zoroastrians. They were heretical Zoroastrians. Because there was a number of books that were circulating at the time. They were attributed to, um, to Zoroaster, uh, his student uh, named Zosimus, and, uh, and his uh, sponsor, uh, Histaspes. So these so various books were being circulated, and they all had to do with magic and astrology and numerology. Attributed to Zoroaster, of course, there was no way, you know, the original Zoroaster would have taught these doctrines. So the question is, where do they come from? So basically, is they were developed in Babylon in the 6th, 17th century, uh, 6th century BC, and they were falsely attributed to Zoroaster. And this is where, for years to come, uh, this remained uh, uh, confusion. So when the so-called Magi left Babylon, uh, some of them um, uh, arrived in Greece with the expansion of the Persian army, and many of them arrived in Egypt. So this is why when you look at the earliest accounts of Greek philosophy, they begin on the western coast of Turkey, not the, the peninsula, Greek peninsula itself, which was then part of the Persian Empire. And there's numerous accounts uh, that claim that you know certain uh, Greek uh, philosophers had learned their teachings from the Magi. And there's specific uh, accounts that claim that Pythagoras himself traveled to, to Babylon. Yeah. I think Plato himself. That's amazing. Yeah. I didn't know that. And Pythagoras, you probably know this, but He's really one of the foundations of masonry and the Western Absolutely. occult tradition. He's just a very important figure. Absolutely. People talk about the Pythagorean theorem, but yeah. they thought he was like a magic man, could be at two places at the same time. Yeah. They attribute all kinds of kind of spiritual power to Exactly. Him. So Plato effectively was sort of like, a, you know, like the chief successor of Pythagoras. And this is why, you know, there's they've even found evidence that the cult of Mithras or the cult of Dionysus, uh, Dionysus, that was that was practiced basically a satanic cult that was satanic mysteries that were being practiced in Greece at the time. Uh, in fact, it's Heraclitus uh, who lived in the in I think the fifth century BC who claimed that the cult of Dionysus was adopted from the infernal rites, as he called it, of the Magi. And there's there's a pap there's a papyrus that was discovered which basically that was can be dated back to that period, which substantiates the claim. So clearly. This satanic Magian cult infiltrated Greece, and this is why it's clear you can see in Tito's, Plato's teachings that he uh, basically was, and there was numerous uh, Magian, not Magians, but people influenced by the Magi, people who were directly an Magian influence that were part of Plato's academy who contributed basically to this, to this background. And this is why you basically, um, uh, particularly the Timaeus, which is uh, one of there's two books that are really key to the occult tradition, that's Timaeus and the Phaedrus, and so Timaeus is basically um, 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 an astrological uh, book. He lays out his astrological doctrine. And Plato is the father of fascism. Right? So Plato is the one who envisioned the state to be ruled by the philosopher kings, as he called them, 
over uh, a three, it's basically three strata. So then there would be like the soldier class and then the the, the plebes, right? Um, what I, I won't go into this now, but I what I look at in my book in Aroab Kao is that this with Alexander the Great, this th three layered um, caste system was in, imported to, uh, to India. And then that's why there you have this whole uh, the importance of the symbolism and tradition of Alexander the Great and all the peoples who are descended from them. And this is something not a lot of talked about, but it's particularly in Pakistan and Afghanistan. There's a lot of people who claim descent both from the lost tribes and as well as um, Alexander. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's amazing. Anyway, Alexander made it that as far as the Indus, right? At least as far as the Indus. I think they crossed the Indus. There's a whole portion. There's the there's the basically the the uh, what's it called the, the Greco uh, Indo Greek empires that lasted for centuries that were basically were Greeks ruling portions of of uh, Pakistan, northern India, and Afghanistan for centuries. There's a whole and Egypt. The, the those of the offspring of Alexander's yes. generals ruled Egypt through Rome at least. Right. I don't know exactly. where to go. But there's this whole sort of like uh, like mix of, of Greek and Buddhist culture which survived for, for centuries in that part of the world. Like the Greek influence there is not is not properly adequately uh, considered to understand the significance of that uh, of the heritage. But that's another tangent. <laughs> so but you're laying the groundwork for all the stuff that's leading up to today. So exactly. these scholars and they all go back and almost all the occultists I've come across they want to trace their legacy back to Babylon. They all do. So the longer, like whatever document it is, if you can trace it to Babylon, it has the most legitimacy in the occult today. Exactly. And like we said, Pythagoras and then Plato as well too. And, and, and the other tradition is, is Hermeticism. So Hermeticism is claimed as attributed to a, um, an ancient sage named Hermes, Egyptian sage named Hermes. And it's not known when or if ever he existed. Uh, but basically, it's another um, adaptation of the Magian cult to uh, Egyptian mythology. Uh, it's basically it's basically the tradition that created uh, the tradition of alchemy. So then, in the when Alexander conquered uh, Egypt and he created the Alexandrian uh, Empire, was what's called the the, the 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 birth of the Hellenistic Age. Sorry, the city in the city of Alexandria, you get this confluence. Of all these uh, traditions, so you get a mix of the you get the Magian influence, you get the Egyptian influence, you get the the, the influence of Neoplatonism, and then uh, because it's part of the Roman Empire, you get all this uh, influence of various uh, mystery cults. So the mysteries of of, uh, of Isis, the mysteries of Sybil, uh, you know, there's numerous mysteries. Of course, the most important one was the mysteries of Mithras. And the mysteries of Mithras has really confounded modern scholars. Uh, they think that uh, Francis Kimmel got it all wrong because they say, look, there had no relation to Zoroastrianism. But Francis Kimmel will point out he never said it had anything to do with Zoroastrianism. That's the whole point. The whole point of his study was to prove that it's heretical Zoroastrianism. So this is why it's not being properly understood and the significance of it has not been understood. So uh, and what happens now is that you get the family... You get the, I always forget how to pronounce it. It's the, the, the Claudio, the Claudio Julia dynasty. It's a, it's, it's a dynasty of about five emperors who were descent, well, related to uh, after Caesar, who claimed descent from Julia, the, the, um, one of the, um, or Julia, it's Latin maybe, one of the um, 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 survivors of the Trojan War. Right? And what's interesting is that he's descended from Ascanius. And this is really this now becomes really important. I trace it. It's surprising to me, but Ascanius is is related to Ashkenaz. Hmm. Right. So, and this is claimed. This even claims substantiated by um, uh, Josephus, uh, an ancient Jewish uh, historian as well, too. History but, of the Jews. History yeah. of the uh, war, Roman War. Was it the Jewish War? Yeah. So he thought that Dardanus was effectively uh, descended from Judah, I think. So who would after Dardanelles are named after? So this Julia dynasty that claimed descent from the Trojan War, and specifically Ascanius, um, um, they basically used the Indian, I think, as like a propaganda to, to to sell their importance to the Roman Empire and the importance of their dynasty. And now they intermarried extensively with 
first of all, the priest kings of Amasa. Amasa is a is a city in Syria, which was the 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 the, 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 the focal point of the worship of El Gabalas, which is a uh, so it's a, basically a derivation of Baal. Gotcha. And uh, so it's basically another variation of the same dying god cult. And so all, a lot of these priest kings of Amasa now were contributing to the development of, most of them were involved somehow in development of Neoplatonism. Right? So again, to understand Western uh, esoteric history, though the main paths to follow are Neoplatonism and Hermeticism, plus the, the mysteries. So that's why that's interesting. So, um, so, so then, so you have the, the Julia Cloud dynasty, the priest kings of Mesa, and then you have the House of Herod. And this is really important. So, Her Herod is a very peculiar case because he's not really Jewish. They are Edomites that converted to Judaism, and that has a whole history on itself, which I'm sure the listeners, a few listeners, will know what cl what clue that refers to. And, uh, well, the Edomites, right? Weren't they supposedly the offspring of Lot and his daughters? The Moabites and the Edomites, I think, were descendants of uh, escapees from Sodom and Gomorrah. At least that's the, I think that's the legend. I don't know. Well, the thing with the Edomites is that they are so when, uh, when Jacob, Jacob, I guess it was Israel had two sons, Jacob and Esau, and um, um, his mother. Jacob's mother helped him uh, fool the father into handing the birthright to Jacob instead of uh, Esau, who was the legitimate son. And Esau was described as being ruddy or red, red-headed. So basically, Edom means red. And so ever since that time, Edom is considered to be really the origin of the the red-haired aspect of the. And this is key because this this is what this is what leads us to Dan Brown, right? This the red hair is supposed to be. You know, Mary Magdalene had red hair, which is supposed to prove that she's part of this ancient uh, Illuminati bloodline or whatever you want to call it. And so, just for people who don't know, there is a sequence of sex magic in Dan Brown's novel. So it's a, a very like uh, small scene, but there definitely some kind of weird Middle yeah. Eastern sex magic thing that the guy was involved Absolutely. in. Absolutely. Yeah. It's almost the focal point of the whole book is that the daughter, uh, when she's young, she happens on her grandfather, who was her protector, uh, in an act, in a, in participating in a sex rite. And of course, she's shocked. And only later can she she can she supposedly learn that oh, it's it's misunderstood, but it's just actually you know the true Christianity. Right, right. Yeah, it's totally nonsense. I was wrong. The yeah. the offspring of Lot were Moab and Ammon. So I apologize. Right. Yeah. Not Edom. So, I mean, so that's why when you look at the red-haired heritage, we're not, we're not going to go into this tangent, but basically that's that's where it goes into the Khazars and the 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 you know the the Scots and the the you know people of actually Ukraine and that whole other history. But um, uh, where were we? So, so we're just kind of families. developing past like the Rome and yeah. all that stuff. So, so all these families. So, what's really interesting is that um, uh, the the House of Herod was forming all these dynastic alliances with the the Roman empires and the priest kings of Emesa, and a lot of them were having to uh, basically to marry the daughters and the granddaughters of Herod. They had to convert to Judaism, and uh, so there was a real conflict there, of course, with the practice of circumcision. So this is why it became a real uh, contentious issue, and this is why so. So Robert Eisenman, who was a pretty well-respected um, researcher on the Dead Sea Scrolls, he's come up with, he wrote an article, which is it's a short article, but it's it's a bombshell. He basically says that, that Paul, St. Paul, um, was uh, an agent of the House of Herod. So um, uh, what's interesting, you know, what pe people forget is that, you know, uh, Christians will apologize, well, forgive me, but basically... Um, you know, the, the, the Gospels were revealed to uh, Jesus. Uh, there's four of them uh, having to do with the message of Jesus. The books of Paul and who were direct disciples of Jesus, whereas Paul only claimed that he saw Jesus in a uh, vision. So we have to take his word for it. But when you look at his, his teachings and how far they depart from 
well, the message in the other four Gospels, uh, you really have to wonder where he was going. So what I treat, I think, I think in this book and several of my other ones is to show the influence, uh, basically the departure, Paul's departure away from Christianity. So Jesus was effectively a Jewish reformer uh, there to try to to bring the Jewish people back to the what he believed was the 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 truer tradition of Judaism. Paul brings in this entirely new doctrine, uh, which effectively is very, very close to the Gnostic teachings. And there's several books, I can't remember, I'll be able to uh, mention them off the top of my head, which basically exposes Paul as a Kabbalist. So why this is interesting is because these families now, this confluence of these families uh, survive and become uh, almost hereditary. So they become the hereditary guard leaders of the Roman Empire, as well as guardians of the Mithraic uh, tradition. And this is why uh, their, ultimately their line of descent culminates in Constantine, who, of course, as is well known, establishes Christianity as their official religion of the Roman Empire. But the version of Christianity that he establishes is basically one that has been substantially modified to um, to be as similar as possible to the Mithraic tradition. And this is why, uh, effectively, uh, what I argue is that um, the version of Christianity, which became adopted by the Roman Empire, adopted the ideas like uh, Jesus uh, uh, um, being the son of God, uh, being born on December 25th, which, of course, is the uh, winter solstice, which is coincide with the birth of Mithras. The... Um, the Eucharist is effectively, uh, um, if I'm going to be blunt, I'm going to say it, it's a satanic ritual where you... you uh, Transmogrification, right? Like yes, you eat, actual literal. you eat the, the, the body of the God and you drink uh, his blood. Um, and then various other elements. I don't have to go into detail, but basically that's how these families um, 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 uh, really survived underground for for centuries. So what's really interesting is that one of the so one of the leading, uh, probably the one of the most famous uh, Neoplatonic philosophers is Iamblichus. And what's interesting about him is that he he he's one he wrote one of the few books, which is probably one of the only surviving. Um, I hope I'm getting that right. He's one of the only surviving um, 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 literary uh, elements in support of the religion of Mithras. I think it's called uh, the triumph of the the nymphs or something like that. And um, see on Pythagoras, it's 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 Iamblichus who claims that Pythagoras had studied. He's one of the he's one of the authors who claimed Pythagoras studied in Babylon. So, that's so one of the descendants of Iamblichus is the grandfather of Charlemagne. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, so I'm not sure you know how, what significance that is, but it's a surprising clue. Um, and then you know, so yeah, so with Charlemagne, you have the birth of Europe, and um, so really, this is what I trace in my book, and I think this is where this Mithraic bloodline becomes really interesting because uh, what happens is that there's, so there's a book written called I think it's called Sefer HaKabbalah, um, because there was a, there seems to have been. In fact, I'll backtrack again. There's what's, His name is uh, Arthur Zuckerman. So he's the one who wrote the book that provided a lot of the the, the sort of the clue that uh, sent the authors of the Holy Blood, Holy Grail on their path. Mm -hmm. okay. It's called A Jewish Princedom in Septimania, I think is the book that he wrote. And uh, so he claims that, uh, Char so the, the Sefer Kabbalah says that so there's the story of this uh, exarch. So at the time, uh, the Jews were living in the Islamic Empire, and they had a ruler over their community uh, called an exarch, who was a uh, basically claimed descent from David, and he was a hereditary uh, ruler of the Jewish community. And there was a dispute, and uh, so the the disputant who lost the sort of the right to succeed to the office, he supposedly fled west. This is what the common uh, you know, Jewish legend is. And so the story is that he ended up probably in France, and uh, that's where he was accepted by Charlemagne and married his daughter or something like that, his sister, I can't remember what it was specifically. And um, 
So he's known as Rabbi Makir. And um, so this is basically, that's the core of where um, the Holy Blood, Holy Grail takes off, is they believe that this kingdom, Jewish kingdom, uh, in Septimania, kind of really gives birth to this um, Kabbalistic tradition, which becomes the Priory of Zion and all that stuff. Wow, that's incredible. And my understanding is Charlemagne, like his bloodline has pervaded all of Western Europe. Have you heard that? That like he's like one of these kind of yeah, genetic. Yeah. We're, we're all if you if you have any European descent, you're related. For, to you're related to Charlemagne, yeah. So it's crazy. So this is the foundation. It does go into the Merengians, goes into Saint yeah. Clair. He talks about Saint Clair in the book. Yeah. So this is the foundation of all this incredible three thousand year history leading up to today. It's the foundation of Masonic history. Yeah. So. Because the Rabbi Makir's son then supposedly is uh, William of Galon, Guillaume of Galon, who was one of the most famous uh, heroes of the of the ancient uh, sort of early, well, the, the, the Chanson de Zergeste, I think is what it would be called, like the sort of um, uh, the, the, the various romances. And he becomes effectively, you know, a hero linked to the legends of the Holy Grail. So what's fascinating is that what I've studied, and if you can follow it, is that all of these European bloodlines, the aristocratic bloodlines, they can all be traced back to Guillaume of Galon. Because there's very past of them, but it's the ones in particular that are linked to him that, that serve effectively in preserving this occult uh, tradition, particularly through the legends of the Holy Grail. And this is a subject I've studied even more carefully in my recent book because I've been able to identify even more closely the specific people who are involved, like all the connections, all the authors, the various authors of the early Grail legends were specifically tied with the families, particularly the Plantagenets um, and uh, and, the very, and basically the French uh, royal uh, families. Right. So it's all the Holy Grail is going through all of these elite traditions. It's totally reminds me of Eyes Wide Shut. Like Kubrick had keyed into this bloodline truth which is why you see all those seals at the ritual room, all of those family, you know, insignia and seals, Christ. all hints at this tradition. And that's the real rulers and they're involved in sex seems magic. Yeah, it seems to be. So what's, what's really curious is that what I found again, and this is what I trace in my, I mean, I, 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 I treat it in terms of but I, I, I investigated much deep, more deeply in my recent book is that, um, um, one of the founders of the Templar order, his name was Hugh of Champagne. And Champagne is really fascinating, the Champagne region, because, you know, it's amazing how a lot of these things can sort of, uh, a lot of investigations can support each other. But there's a book by, called the, the uh, Before Western Hegemony. And um, what she shows is that basically uh, Western capitalism is born in the Champagne region. And the reason is, is because of the technologies that were brought back from the Crusades. And the leader, the, the leader of that community at the time was Hugh of Champagne. And Hugh of Champagne was one of the founders of the Templars. Wow, fascinating. So it says here it was his third time to go to the Holy Land. So they're traveling that that route to the Holy Land to fight, right? Yes. So Hugh of Champagne was in contact with uh, Rashi of Troy. And Rashi is probably the most important a medieval uh, Jewish scholar, like hugely famous, and um, uh, so he was he was headquartered at Troyes, which is big. Troy which was um, uh, there is him, him, and um, uh, which is uh, was it in the, in the Champagne region, I think. And so, uh, what's interesting is that uh, Rashi, yeah, it's in Champagne. Yeah, Champagne. Yeah. So Rashi is also considered basically one of the earliest founders of Zionism. And so he was one of the first ones to propose that the Jewish people were entitled to possess the Holy Land, which is interesting because now he is in a relationship with uh, Hugh of Champagne, who was, well, one of, who, was responsible, uh, who was responsible for the founding of the Templars, who of course were established in Jerusalem. But there's also a very interesting story about Rashi uh, meeting with uh, Godfrey of Bouillon be before he goes on the crusade. And I can't remember what prediction was, but I can't remember the details of the story, but it just shows that Rashi was very much um, 
in a you know in a very close relationship he was also connected to people like uh i think what was his name harding he's one of the founders of the cistercian order with um, saint bernard of clairvaux so this is why it's interesting now you have this early proto-zionist in relationship with the founder of the templars and the cistercian order and so it's really from the, again from these families because it's if the families that survived the crusade so you have to, what's important too is that the first thing that they did is they established a king kingdom of jerusalem and the reason for that of course is that it's significant for the the, the expectations of the end times right because the 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 belief is that the messiah will be a descendant of david so so that messiah is supposed to have a divine dynasty and so the all these families could claim the davidic lineage through the Yom of Galon. Right. right, and the Jews are still waiting for the Messiah, right? That's the one of the huge differences. They're still praying for the Messiah yes. three times a day. Bring us the Messiah, bring us the right. Messiah. So all these families now, basically, you get this confluence of all um, of, of the various branches of them, and almost in every case, they can all be traced back to Yom Cologne, usually claim Davidic descent, usually attempt to claim in one way or the other uh, um, the the right to as as kings of Jerusalem. This is why I have a chapter in my latest book called "The Kings of Jerusalem" because it shows how all these families uh, evolved and um, uh, uh, intermarried and which um, right. What and they look the same. If you look at pictures of the Tsarists and like the English bloodline, mm -hmm. they look like they're definitely cousins, but they look very similar. At least mm -hmm. back before World War One. Yeah. And the, I think that the house of, uh, was it Saxe-Coburg-Gotha, they claimed uh, descendants through David as well. So they yeah. believe they're a bloodline yeah. through Irish kingship. Yeah. And the, that, that throne that they have, whatever that stone supposedly oh, oh. Uh, came from Jerusalem, the whatever. Yeah. Exactly. Scottish. Yeah. So exactly. This stuff is real. It yeah. sounds like it's mythology. It's not. These These are real. Stories, the bloodlines, people's go, going way yeah. back. It's really incredible. I mean, it, there's, there's elements that are true. There's probably a lot of elements that are embellished. Uh, but I think what's important to understand, I mean, what substantiates the claim that it's at least perceived to be true is that it forms the basis of. So I, I, I think, I believe the order that's probably one of the most important. One of them is, is the order of the garter. Uh, but the other one is the order of the golden fleece. So, so what's interesting is that um, the, the recent... Uh, Grandmaster of the Order of Golden Fleece, hereditary Grandmaster would have been Otto von Habsburg, okay? and he was another hereditary claimant of the Kingdom of Jerusalem. And this is what you find consistent going all the way back to the to the Crusades. These families were typically, uh, and so what's interesting is my chapter on the Kingdom of on the Kings of Jerusalem that traces their descent and their involvement, all the families uh, that 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 um, that they. Divided into uh, at one point is mostly Italian families, like the families uh, of Savoy, the families of Est, the families of Sforza. Uh, they're involved in development of the tarot, which is very interesting because that's key to later uh, uh, occult mythology, particularly with the Golden Dawn, and um, um, and the order of the Fleur de Lis. So the order of Fleur de Lis again is a key order, closely related to order of the Golden Fleece. And so because when you look at the list of the Grand Masters of the so-called Prior of Zion, they are effectively, it's effectively a list of the Grand Masters of the Order of the Fleur de Lis and the Order of the Golden Fleece. Wow. So, so the people who are creating this modern mythology of the Priory of Zion, they had merely been introduced to the, the, the lore of these um, orders and then somehow, you know, fabricated this uh, I think it was basically some kind of marketing campaign because effectively that's what Dan Brown, I don't know if he knew if he was in on it or he is just a dupe, but, you know, in one way or the other, he was used to basically, uh, you know, popularize, popularize uh, right. this, um, you know, this this sort of older tradition of the, of these orders in a particular way because, you know, the whole focus of his book is like his favorite word, of course, words is the the sacred feminine right that's what he claims that he's uh, celebrating and uh um, you can interpret that in multiple ways right like oh yeah that's virgin mary or that's the feminine side that has sex in the old temple that's with what, the god or whatever you know yeah uh, <clears throat> yeah so there's a lot of uh 
he did a good job because I think Angel and Demons too covers the Illuminati. So he's exactly. putting those ideas into the public mind. No exactly. And occultism, yeah. pyramids, all that stuff. There's a little inside stuff there. And they talk about the Sinclairs. You talk about the Sinclairs in this book. That's and that it. they end up, the the movie ends up at that famous uh, church Russell right Chapel. in Scotland. Mm-hmm. Chapel. Chapel, which then ties it all together again. Right, the Scots claim descent from the Khazars, which is supposedly was where they got their red hair. So Dan Brown says that uh, 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 Roslyn actually means rose line or red line. So it's basically the line of this red heritage. Mary Magdalene had red hair, and uh, so that yeah, that's the that it's entire. Incredible. And then in Washington D.C., Roslyn's right there. It's literally you can stand in Roslyn and look straight down the you know what is it called the. The, the late obelisk night. and everything you can just like right from Roslyn. It's really incredible. Yeah. I still live in Roslyn. There's tons of occultism in DC. So you can see you've laid the groundwork of all that stuff back to the present day, dispersed all the way. These families, mm-hmm. these cities. I mean, you can see that in um in Rome, mm-hmm. DC, London, all this stuff is in there. It's really incredible. Yeah. And all came back from that Templars. The Templars brought the whole idea of Baphomet, right? They brought a lot of that old black magic type stuff, is, is the rumor, including yeah. probably some other people too. Yeah. Wow, it's really incredible. I mean, it brings it up to the present. So then you have these Illuminati families and a lot, there's a lot of, you know, fake terrorism and fake stuff going on. All of this. Yeah. I mean, we talked in the pre show. Yeah. Like, I'm not sure anything that happened from 2000 to 2008 was authentic. I don't think, <laughs> I'm not kidding either. Like, I don't, I think it was all just psychic driving and new form of warfare. Yeah. Just hit dupes and suckers, or there's a, great so you, line, there's a great line in 1984 where um Winston is talking to his girlfriend, I can't remember what her name was, and um, you know, she's not as educated as as she as he is. That's the way he describes her. She just kind of talks, you know, from her heart off the cuff. And they talked about the some of the terrorist attacks that happened recently. She said, Oh, those didn't really happen. That's just the government, you know, um murdering their own people. For for propaganda's sake, wow, it's incredible. Mm-hmm. But you can see like the environment that uh, he that Orwell wrote about was creating that environment in 1984 of like bombings and shootings and yeah. chaos, and you, that's what's happening today. Yeah, same thing on TV. Well, what's interesting about I mean, Orwell is is was a student of uh, Aldous Huxley, and so what people forget is that. Uh, they focus on the aspect of him supposedly exposing tyranny, but he's 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 basically uh, relating what's called a Freudian Marxist um, agenda. It's the belief. So so the Frankfurt School, their whole purpose, of course, they have a Sabbatian uh, background. So their whole purpose is to basically uh, teach the holiness of sin. So you know, a, a Freudian interpretation that uh, sin is actually natural, and that it's society that. Uh, that forces us to suppress our, our instincts. And so this is why uh, Orwell's book uh, suggests that the totalitarian state is, you know, suppressing what they call sex crimes. And so that the, the path towards, um, you know, the liberation of the proletariat is also to uh, liberate uh, sexual mores. Interesting. Really, in the Frankfurt School, you can blame the kind of rise of Eros to the Frankfurt School in a very general sense. They really wanted to flood Marcuse and Adorno. I don't know. I don't know if Marcuse was a, a Frankfurt guy, but definitely Adorno. They yeah. definitely wanted to flood the post World War II world with Eros. I think they've really succeeded. Yeah, of course. And Marcuse is the father, of the guru of the new right, new left, as they call him, and he's the one. He's the one who coined "Make Love, Not War." This is why the whole entire 60s was very much, you know, in, in league with the CIA's MK Ultra. It was very much an agenda, a Sabbatian agenda to, uh, to, 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 you know, to preach the holiness of sin. There's, I have a whole chapter now on my, in my latest book about the Frankfurt School and their relationship with the, like it's, um, there's a, uh, I can't remember what his name, first name, Wasserstrom. He's, he's written some amazing articles about the, the, the relation of Sabbatianism with the Frankfurt School. And he shows how it's oh, wow. Gershom Shalom, who is the father of the modern uh, study of Kabbalah, who introduced the the concept of the holiness of sin uh, as developed by Shabbatai Zvi to the various uh, scholars of the Frankfurt School and how they adopted this idea. Wow, that's incredible. Mm-hmm. And yeah. they were all like uh, 
atheists. I mean, they weren't really the Jews. They weren't were practicing conservative Jews, right? That's it. They were ethnically Jewish. Because right. yeah. that's the thing we have to remember about you know Kabbalah. It's that it's or it, in, it's, in the Sabbatian tradition, you know, they basically they're Jews who don't follow Judaism, right? They they they're they're Jews who identify ethnically with being Jewish, but they don't follow. They they only follow. They follow about they follow Bible prophecy, but they don't follow Bible uh, rulings. Right. They don't right. follow Bible law. That's the six hundred thirteen rules, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's how you can understand Zionism. That's basically a nationalist movement which claims to be Jewish, and uh, is attempting to fulfill um, uh, Bible prophecy, but there's no there's no practice of uh, traditional uh, Judaism associated with it. Right. It's incredible. So the really conservative Jews are definitely trying to be true to the Tanakh, but then there's another group within Judaism that's doing something else and not quite uh, loyal. That's why it's really important to look at this. Is why Rabbi Altelman is really, I mean, for me, he's the one who really exposed the, the whole story by showing how it's the Sabbatians who um, um, who developed the traditions of both Reform and Conservative Judaism to basically hijack the religion away from the Orthodox Jews? Because before that, you know, the the, the orth- Judaism was a religion, and then with these movements, they basically created sort of sects or like um, uh, what you can denominations, I guess they are in sort right. of language, and you know, with effectively the assistance of Rothschild money, they were effect- they were ultimately able to, you know. Um, Almost take control of the 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 they, they they moved away from being a marginal marginal movements to really being perceived as really you know almost at the heart of the Jewish community today. It's really fascinating, and there's always been a tension within the Jewish community between those Orthodox types and then these other ones. Like in Jew in Israel, the Orthodox will spit on some of these other uh, yeah. Jews who aren't true, and they view them as real heretics. Like. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, there really are heretics to the Jewish, like uh, this, the rules and the rules-based order of the Jewish religion. They are heretics, mm-hmm. I would say. Oh, man, it's really amazing. Like, there's just so... Uh, TDR asks you a question. Would Mr. Livingston please share what teaching doctrines are warning signs of mystery school, Luciferianism, Satanism, Calvinism? What are warning signs? I think that's what he said. Let me reread that would Mr. Livingstone please share what teaching doctrines are warning signs of mystery school, Luciferianism, Satanism, Calvinism? Is that mm. the answer to that? I don't know. The only thing that comes to my head is I'd recommend studying what's called accelerationism, accelerationism today. Um, you know, again, this is why I say like the, the LaVey's Church of Satan really threw everybody off track. If they're, you know, well, the funny thing is, no, that Church of Satan does have a role in it. What's particularly interesting is um, uh, what I st- again, what I what I cover in my latest book is the history of the of the particularly the, the group of the, the the cult in California, right? So uh, you have people like uh, is it Robert Evans who was the producer? Yes, yes. He produced many many famous movies, but he also produced Rosemary's Baby. He happens to be a friend of Henry Kissinger. Uh, he was also a friend. Kissinger has a lot of satanic friends, which is very interesting. Uh, so he was also a friend of, uh, I can't remember his name now, who was identified by Maury Terry as one of the leaders of the... Roy Radin? Roy Radin? Roy Radin, thank you. Exactly, Roy Radin. And um, uh, so, of course, the Process Church is really what connects Charles Manson and Rosemary's Baby and Mamas and the Papas and, you know, the whole uh, Laurel Canyon uh, network. And they all followed, uh, like Charles Manson did, this concept of accelerationism, uh, which is the belief that you have to try to accelerate the coming of the end times. And this is the concept that they got from the Process Church. And so this this concept has survived uh, into recent times. So when we were talking about terrorism, you know, that's why you sit, we tend to see less um, Islamic terrorism, but we're seeing a rise in fascist terrorism. And uh, or neo-Nazi terrorism, because so you know, really what I've been exposing in my last few books is is the survival of fascism in the 20th century, and the fascist international, and that's really if you want to understand, you know, if you want to call them the Illuminati or wherever they are, uh, that's where 
you can find them. They just have to trace, you know, the organizations that they belong to. In fact, auto so the, the umbrella organization of the fascist international is a group called the Cirque, the Sec, the Circle, and it was founded by uh, one of the founders of it was uh, Otto von Habsburg. Right, and that's actually featured in an intro to one of the James Bond movies. So Ian Fleming knew about the, the Cirque. It was right. a post World War II fascist right. organization. Right. All these same these type of families, right? The bloodline yeah, type. So exactly. So I don't probably know. Fleming was probably one too. So. Well, yeah, you can assume he was he was in brought you know let in on something. Yeah, Scottish banking family. That was. I mean, the, he based a lot of his character on John D, of course, too. So that's. Yeah, that, he knew he was he, uh, he was in the yeah. Eton. He was actually uh, around there yeah. those times. Yeah. Um, yeah, great talk. Uh, another question. We do. We steals Plato snakes. Ask. I got a question. Can David explain the descendants of Cain? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, that's a tough one. So descendants of Cain. Well, I mean, this the, the the entire occult history, particularly the myth of the Aryan race, because that's that's really the Kabbalistic um, fascist uh, theology. Their outlook on the role is based on the on the Aryan race. And so that's the belief uh, based on um, it's basically a Kabbalistic legend that uh, claims that um, uh, it goes back to the story of the sons of God. And again, you'll find this revealed by the ancient alien series, which have exposed themselves as being Satanists as well. And uh, it's the belief that it at the time of the flood, uh, the flood described in the Bible, it says that the sons of God uh, descended to earth and intermarried with the uh, descendants, the female. The, it doesn't say, the, I don't think it says the descendants of Cain specifically. But basically, the, the, the details of the story is only exposed in what's called the Book of Enoch, which, was, um, uh, which emerged in the first centuries uh, AD. And so the Book of Enoch explains that the sons of God were actually uh, Lucifer and the fallen angels. And that they interbred with the descendants of Cain, and they taught them uh, magic. So you know now that we have the the, the we we know that the, the the history of Kabbalah can actually be traced to the sixth century BC, but in terms of the legend that is taught, it's it's uh, it's traced back to its claim that it descends all the way back to the sons of God of uh, of Genesis, and this is why that story it, the claim is that this way in the eighteenth century. Uh, when the British uh, began to colonize India and they were exposed to Sanskrit. And this is when they started to um, incorporate elements of, um, of Indian uh, tradition. And this is why it goes back to what we talked about earlier. It's important to remember that there was a Greek tradition in India, right? So when they're looking at the, when they're looking at a shared heritage, you have to understand that uh, part of that heritage, there's a Greek contribution to it because it, this is where you get the development of this concept called the Oriental Kabbalah, which is the idea that the Kabbalah began in Tibet or uh, Asia before it was adopted by the uh, by the Jews. And so the claim is that the story of the flood represents Atlantis, and when Atlantis sank, a number of the descendants of the fallen angels, who from then on were referred to as Aryans, traveled and settled, landed in the mountains of Asia. And that's where they spread their ancient teachings. And this is why supposedly uh, Tibetan Buddhism uh, represents a survival of the ancient um, uh, magical teachings, which is represented by the survival of the swastika uh, in various uh, parts of the world. So they settled in India, they settled in Persia, and they settled in uh, Europe. And this is where supposedly you have the origins of the so-called Aryan race. And that's fundamentally the Kabbalistic um, legend that fuels the neo-Nazi, um, you know, the Greek replacement theories and all this nonsense that's being uh, spread now. Right. And Iran is like the root word is based on Aryan. Yes. And one of Crowley's off, one of his followers, main followers, uh, Gerald York, mm -hmm. actually brought the Tibetan Buddhist Chalakot, I can't pronounce it, Kalachatra yeah. or something, which is really esoteric. Buddhism from Tibet yeah. back to the West. He was exactly. doing all kinds of Iyengar yeah. yoga. So all this stuff, this wisdom has this very old yeah. 
And it'll tie into where we're going because we wanted to talk about the terrorism Illuminati. This might be a good way to sum it all up. Okay, cool. Is that uh, so that concept was brought in by Blavatsky. Blavatsky, Helena Blavatsky is really the first one to bring forward this idea of um, of uh, Tibetan Buddhism in particular being the ancient heritage, heritage of the Aryan people. And this, of course, led you know subsequent people like Gerald York and so on to continue to advance these kinds of ideas. So Blavatsky, uh, one, she claimed to have been in contact with these various ascended masters, and there's several of them. And there's a book by a couple of them, a couple of books by uh, K. Paul Johnson, which is really fascinating. And he shows that one of her ascended masters was uh, um, Jamal Bedin al Afghani. This guy is a fascinating character. Uh, it's hard to. Uh, to, it's hard to it's hard to 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 give full weight to to, to this guy's influence. He was a, he was a Shia born in Iran, but when after he traveled to Afghanistan, he claimed to be a Sunni. When he moved to Egypt, he, he was kicked out of every place he came to because he was such a rabble rouser. When he came to Egypt, he became grandmaster of the Freemasons, and uh, he called himself uh, he and, he and his followers called themselves uh, Brethren of Sincerity. And the Brethren of Sincerity was an occult Islamic Sufi organization that, according to Masonic heritage, were the group that taught the Templars their uh, occult uh, doctrines. And so at the same time, so Afghani, he's he's basically part of a circle of all these sort of Middle Eastern Masons, all the British agents, the famous, the key Bridget, British agents that uh, gave rise to the, to the basically, this is, this is the focus of my book, The Terrorism Illuminati, is the particularly uh, out of, first of all, out of Saudi Arabia, and then uh, in the development of the Salafi movement. So Jamal Afghani is the founder of the Salafi movement. And so modern Islamic terrorism has all been really uh, perpetrated by Salafi, by the Salafi movement, who eventually became allied with the Wahhabi movement. They, they, they're misperceived as being an Islamic movement. Uh, they even they even uh, misrepresent uh, themselves as being Sunni. They are not Sunni. They're really a, a sect that is very uh, far away from the, the tr traditional Islam. But uh, they were founded by Masons, and basically since that time, they have been uh, serving as tools of British imperialism and American imperialism, uh, particularly through the founding of the Muslim Brotherhood. So the Muslim Brotherhood, again, founded by Hassan al-Banna, who uh, apparently originally, according to John Loftus, he was commissioned by Hitler to found the group. And he, uh, it was a Salafi, again, organization. Uh, his, his, the teacher of his teacher, teacher was, uh, was Jamal Afghani. And uh, so this is what's really important. So you have this one character, uh, Jamal Afghani, who becomes the, one of the key contributors to this concept of the Oriental Kabbalah with, with uh, Blavatsky, founder of, of, um, of Salafism, which is the core organization, like uh, Al-Qaeda basically is a descendant of the Salafi tradition coming from the uh, Muslim Brotherhood, which is basically a, a crypto-pagan uh, mystical organization. And secondly, uh, we'd have enough to a couple of minutes, Jamal of Ghani was also the source for Saint-Yves d'Alvedre, and he is the founder of Synarchism. So the Priory of Zion myth and all the and and um, Pierre Plantar and that whole tradition, what was eventually popularized by Dan Brown, is effectively a synarchist uh, mythology that's connected to Otto von Habsburg and Order of Golden Fleece. They're the ones who who sort of brought in and claimed this, you know, invented this heritage of the of the Order of the Fleur de Lis and the Golden Fleece. So Saint Yves d'Albet. So it was it originates in the synarchism founded by St. Yves d'Alved, whose original source was, again, uh, Jamal Afghani. Afghani, right. And Afghani is a kind of a notorious figure in that tradition, and within Islam. Everybody knows Afghani. He a was a kind of, of a pan-Arabist, pan-Islamist. Yeah. But a little, uh, not not orthodox, right? So a little yeah. bit different. Yeah. Um, interesting character. I remember reading about him in college, but... Uh, yeah. He, and he, a lot of people... A lot of people don't know the esotericism and kind of the influence of masonry within that world, within the Middle Eastern world as well. They, yeah. uh, 
that you just kind of see it from the Western perspective or the American perspective, mm -hmm. just a bunch of people, followers of Islam and mm -hmm. Arab, uh, ethnic Arabs. It's not true. It's I'm not talking about the double-headed eagle and the in the in the symbol of the you know uh, of the Scottish Rite Freemasonry. That's why if you look at the typical Ordo Alcao and it's got a double-headed eagle because that represents the East and the West. So it's the it's the Eastern tradition and the Western tradition. The Eastern tradition typically refers to like the Brethren of Sincerity, the well the the those Eastern Middle Eastern. Or, occult organizations that the Templars uh, came in contact with and the Templars would represent the Eastern tradition. Right. So it's called, it's called, uh, they're called in, in Masonic tradition, they're referred to as the emperors of East and West. Wow, fascinating. I mean, this is a great talk. Every time I talk to you, I learn so much. Where's the best place for people to get terrorism and the Illuminati? Uh, probably my latest website. So actually it's not available anymore. Okay. It's not available. People no, say no. the book is now 50 bucks, so like the yeah. hardbound book. Do you just, sell it through your website? I guess the order up, Kale? Just Google, just Google for a PDF. Gotcha. So yeah, the PDF is out there. Around you can definitely get a Kindle. And then your newest book is orderopko.ca. Dot .ca, right? So it's or I can put that in the show. It's orderopko. And people can order the six-part books in from that website, correct? Yes. And also, that's the best place to contact you if they have any follow-up yeah. questions or anything yeah. like that. Yeah, I got everything. Okay. I'll have I'll have this interview posted there in a couple of days. Uh, the interview page with the past interviews are, are linked there as well too, and cool. uh, links to my books. My entire book is online as well too, and um, other resources. I've got a I've got a chart which I finally put together a genealogical chart of of the I call it the occult octopus which shows basically the lineage of all of the uh, key uh, occultists and orders uh, going back, I believe, to at least the Rosicrucians. Wow. Yeah, I'd like to see that for sure. Thanks so much for your time. David Livingston, title of the book, published 2007. Very important book, Terrorism in the Illuminati, A 3,000-Year History by David Livingston. Again, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Take care. Yeah. Stay there. Stay there.